Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about leftist politics and Christianity. I'm Matt. I teach at Greenville University, and it's Christmas break, and I'm not doing anything. Nice. Uh, I am Dean Detloff, and I live in Canada. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and it's not really Christmas break for me because I don't have classes anymore, but I did get sick, so it feels like Christmas break. Yeah, so that's important. I got that, I got that good, good frog voice going on today so <laughs> you're welcome sick well uh <laughs> it's post christmas day but it's still the christmas season because christians sometimes depending on <laughs> their tradition celebrate christmas for 12 days that's like the song 12 days of christmas ever heard if of you, it if you if you recall uh, so, uh, on that note, this is the Magnificast Christmas Tide Extravaganza. Um, <laughs> we're super psyched about it. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, something super cool uh, Ernesto Cardinal's The Gospel in Solentaname. Uh, this book is a record of dialogues, I guess. Maybe that's how we could just call them. It's just, a, just that's all it is, just dialogues between a Catholic priest, Ernesto Cardinal. And uh, some campesinos, uh, who I guess just are basically farmers. That's the word they use, though. And I like it, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, between a priest and farmers who live in a remote location in Nicaragua called Solentaname. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. I don't know anything about Spanish, so maybe I'm doing it completely wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, the dialogues are really neat uh, because uh, it's a way to sort of read the gospel alongside with just the, the people who the gospel's written for, like the poor the poor people, um, and kind of reflect on what's so wild about Christianity and Christmas. So here we are putting the Christ back in Christmas and uh, reading the gospel with some some <laughs> extremely good uh, liberation theology type folks. It's, uh, it is the class war on Christmas on this podcast this week. <laughs> uh, but before we uh, get into the trenches of that war, uh, we're going to read some <laughs> iTunes reviews first. Okay. So there are two reviews, and they're both extremely good. Sorry, <laughs> um, like my reviews. The first, okay, the first one. Now, okay, I'm gonna read the shortest one first, and then the longest one second, because uh, why not? Okay, um, so the first review is from username God's Baby 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect for uh, Christmas time. Yeah, and they actually left this review for us on iTunes on Christmas, December 25th, 2017. Um, they must have been listening whilst uh, their family were, you know, being families or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyways, that's uh, extremely good dedication to this podcast. <laughs> Listen to it on Christmas Day. Okay, the title of this this review is They May Be Boys, 5 out of 5 stars. Uh, they may be boys, <laughs> but this is good listening, comrades. That's all they said. That was the review, and I think it's good. It's good. It is good listening. They're not wrong. Yeah. I also appreciate the they may be boys qualification um, because uh, we we are limited by our being being boys. Um, oh yeah, and I'm glad that people are willing to look past that on occasion. <laughs> it's so nice that they do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, the second review <laughs> is pretty wild. I'm a little bit embarrassed to read it because it's so funny. <laughs> um, okay, so here it goes. Uh, this is by Brett W.A. on December 15th, so before Christmas. Uh, it is titled, Great Podcast or The Greatest Podcast? Five out of five stars. Mm. Looks like they Important made their question. mind. Five out of five stars, so must be greatest. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on to your butts for this one. I'm holding on. 
I'm like, I'm going to have a hard time getting through this without just uh, falling over dead. Matt and Dean, or as I refer to them inside my own head, Magnanimous Matty B and Dean the Dreamboat D. So here's the thing. I, I can't read any further. That's actually not – that's like the first sentence, but I can't read any further. Uh, people in my high school youth group called me Matty B. So, Brett – Is that uh, right? Yeah, no joke. Um, my wife can confirm. So <laughs> – Whoever this person is, maybe I went to youth group with them, or maybe yeah, they, uh, they also called me a, a, a dreamboat in high school too. That was widely widely known as my. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Okay, um, so <laughs> um, Matt and Dean are truly top tier TM. Uh, that's what they did. TM trademark. Uh, the podcast is deeply philosophical, informative, entertaining, and genuinely funny which one may not necessarily expect from a Christian communist podcast. <laughs> I don't know why, because that's the biggest joke of everything. Um, you sincerely <laughs> feel as if you're listening to two of your close friends talk. It's precisely that sort of warmth and authenticity that keeps me coming back week after week to eat and drink from, and maybe even bathe in the Magnificast trough, TM. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gross trough. Yeah. It's <laughs> you can get the Magnificast trough on uh on our Etsy store that's coming, so just keep an eye <laughs> we, out for we let that. Pe- we let people do anything in it, so whatever you want. <laughs> just anything. <laughs> Bathe in uh, it, eat out of it, whatever. <laughs> all of the things. Uh, <laughs> but you got to get your own. That's the important thing. Okay. I, <laughs> I also love when they straight dunk on reactionaries. Me too. I mean, if podcasting was like late 90s NBA basketball and reactionaries were playing defense, then Matty B and Dreamy Dean would be Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady of Dunkin' on Dudes. That's not a <laughs> reference I get completely because I've actually never watched sports, but I think that's good. I like yeah, it. I, I think it's good. I did play a lot of NBA Street on PlayStation when I was a child, and uh, so my, I would say my, my frame of reference understands at least the point that's being conveyed here, and I do appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dunk three point. That's all I got. <laughs> that three point dunk. It's uh, three point. extra points for just being so so good at dunking. Uh, how many points do you get if you're at half court? Do you get three or four? I think you get all the points you need to win the rest. Yeah, of the that's game. true. They give you the secret code uh, to play yeah. as Bill Clinton. Yeah, it sort of <laughs> it sort of depends on the pace and the nature of the game, uh, whether or not you unlock the Bill Clinton cheat in real life. That's an NBA Jam joke, by the way. Uh, only 90s <laughs> kids are going to get that one. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, the show is great. If you're not listening to it, seriously, get your life together and get on that. I don't want to have to come over to your house and force those headphones on. So, I mean, I guess this, this person's going to do that. So Yeah, ending with a threat, that's uh, not exactly our style, but I'm not going to disparage it. Um, I literally have just been, uh, was just reading some, uh, some student reviews from the past semester and none of them were that positive. So it makes me feel very good. (laughs) Hey, so here's something you should review. Uh, how, how are your Christmas gifts before we get into this? 10 out of 10. Very good gifts. Nice. Um, I got all kinds of good stuff. Um, most notably, I don't know. They're all extremely good. Um, but one that I'm excited just really excited about is my wife got me this um big and awesome uh like pen and ink drawing of fidel so i'm gonna put that in my office nice yeah that's awesome yeah it's good it's good stuff what about you did you get any any like good loot i did uh emily got me a great uh t-shirt from the zapatistas well from schools for chiapas which supports the zapatistas uh it's got um a, a good marcus sort of photocopy image <laughs> uh 
and it says in Spanish, apparently, because Emily reads Spanish and I do not, uh, it's got the Zapatista quote of, um, uh, excuse us, where this is just a revolution or whatever it is. I don't know. The exact words escape me right now, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, anyhow, I had to explain to you my, uh, well, I won't say who. I had to explain to somebody what it was, someone who probably does not love the Zapatistas or wouldn't. Uh, uh-huh. So I described it as being a, a really thoughtful gift supporting one of my favorite nonprofits in the world. So <laughs> that's how I'm referring to the Zapatistas from now on. That's also technically true. So there you go. Yes. So that was my that was the standout gift of 2017. Oof. Good gifts. Good gifts all around. Cool. Well, there you have it. Christmas. Ten out of ten five out of five stars um i don't know exactly what all these uh uh, eight out of eight ornaments i don't know whatever whatever metric you want um all the all the bars are filled uh yeah i don't know what else to say about my own christmas except that um i don't know it was like it's it's very cold in toronto that's it there's nothing else that's interesting to say about it no (laughs) it was good i went to midnight mass oh sick what's that like uh pretty good um there's all kinds of stuff uh going on in catholic midnight mass uh lots and lots of incense at this one in particular i went to a jesuit parish in toronto which i really like our lady of lords and uh that was fun and i sat next to a philosopher that i know james Ultheus. if you don't know who he is you ought to he's a cool guy um but it was pretty good because we got there super early so that we could get seats and uh Jim was telling me about uh, Derrida and global Latinization, which is like a, I don't know, Derrida's really fascinating read on kind of how bad Christianity is and how it like takes over the entire world in this like horrifying way. Uh, And that was like a really, really wild preface to Midnight Mass, but I was into it. (laughs) I dug it. That sounds like the best. Uh, I just met up with some friends at IHOP, so (laughs) seems like you The Midnight Mass for Protestants. Yeah, it's at IHOP. I got some Nutella crepes, and they're extremely good. So uh, <laughs> Midnight mass of calories. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, good. Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. let's, get, right. let's get into it, Dean. Tell us what's up yep. with uh, this book. All right, this is a good book. Uh, we read some of it in the last episode with Catherine from Friendly Anarchism, and that was really fun. And people were like, we're craving so much more, and we were too. So we got a hold of a copy of it, and here's a little bit of background. So Ernesto Cardinal is a priest in Nicaragua, and he started a community in Salentiname, a very sort of poor region uh, in Nicaragua, in 1968. And that was after a very important conference held in Colombia among a bunch of Latin American bishops called the Medellin Conference Conference. and if you don't know anything about that, it was sort of, it's kind of credited with being one of the, the maybe birth places or high fever points of liberation theology in Latin America. So that conference happened, Ernesto Cardinal established this community, and there uh, he had all these conversations with peasants and workers and rural folks and other folks, and they would just talk about gospel readings and biblical passages And so he compiled this book together of transcribed uh, tape recordings of those conversations. And the translation that we have was published in 1976 in English. So 
he doesn't say in the book exactly when these all happened at least in this edition but that's when we got it so uh the wild thing about that is that Salentaname was burnt to the ground in 1977 by the Somoza regime the brutal uh, reactionary government um in Nicaragua at the time and that was because a bunch of people from Salentaname went to participate in an attack on Somoza forces so they retaliated that way and that led Cardinal to leave to live in Costa Rica in exile where he joined the Sandinista Liberation Front or otherwise known as the FSLN and then uh, to make a long story short when the Sandinistas formed a government he came back to Nicaragua as the Minister of Culture so uh, he had a pretty prominent role in the revolutionary government so that's like a maybe historical way of just setting this up it's probably more than anybody wanted to know but that's where these conversations are taking place uh in Salentaname, in a very poor part that went on to become after these conversations happened went on to become a significant sort of um site for revolutionary activity yeah that's helpful to contextualize this overall um so the book itself is I don't know, pretty interesting, too. It's not like um, a book of liberation theology. It's not really a book um, of theology at all. I mean, I, I guess it is, in a way. It's just a little bit of a different form. So the uh, the book is just broken up into chapters where they, um, where uh, Cardinal and then people in his community uh, are just, like, discussing different biblical texts and different themes and kind of relating them to their own lives and just talking through them. It's kind of like sitting in on a Bible study of... Uh, of people in Solentaname. Um, but it's way more exciting than any Bible study I've ever been a part of. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, just a collection of, uh, different dialogues, uh, different back and forths and exchanges between people. So there's no like exposition. There's no like real, like, um, like, you know, Cardinal doesn't come in at the end of the chapter and, and sort of saying like, what they really mean by this is, you know, and then it explains it. It's just kind of, um, <laughs> It's just kind of those conversations like laid bare for us to read and see what's up. Um, so each one, though, has lots of different characters in it. Um, I think Dean and I both have our favorites. Um, Felix, Olivia, Julio, uh, <laughs> uh, old, old, uh, old Tomas Pina, uh, and a few others, too, keep showing up time and time again. So if you hear us talking about like something that someone says, it's just like someone ran- someone's name. That's because that's what the book is like. Just collections of these kind of dialogues. Um <laughs> So uh, we're going to try to give it to you guys straight, though, and not just pick our favorites, even though they're really all my favorite, honestly. They're so good and funny. Um, They are. Yeah. Uh, Okay, cool. So um, the book is not huge, but long enough. We decided that we wanted to uh, kind of curate what we read and talked about on this episode based on the general theme of Christmas. so we started with chapter six, which is called "The Birth of Jesus." Uh, obviously, that's where we're starting because that's that's what Christmas is all about, after all. <laughs> Charlie Brown. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dean, do you want to like introduce us to this bit here? Yeah, sure. So, like you were just saying, it's basically a bunch of people just sort of working through the text. So, um, the book will present some of the text that they read, and then they kind of pause for a discussion over it so there's a lot of stuff they say and there are a lot of themes that are repeated in a variety of contexts throughout the book but we kind of keyed in on just a couple i guess um so maybe two really interesting things to note um one is that there was an earthquake that happened around the same time 
as this particular conversation and that kind of sets up some really interesting um reflections that we'll get into in a minute here uh and then secondly there's a lot of really cool stuff that we'll see come up over and over again where these peasants in Salentaname really read themselves into and identify with uh, the characters and situations in the Gospels. Um, so maybe we could start out a little bit just by talking about like uh, the theme of class disparity and how they pull that out in this conversation. So Matt, uh, one thing that we both had underlined uh, was a time when someone says uh, God wanted his son to be born in a pigsty. Uh, and uh, it's just like such a good summary of how these folks are, are sort of understanding the conditions into which Jesus is born. Uh, I don't know. What did that, what impression did that make on you? Yeah. Um, that line stuck out to me. I didn't even have to like go back and look it up. I just like, I knew that's one thing that we would have to talk about. Um, right. That uh, God wanted his son to be born in a pigsty is sort of a statement that's indicative of um, the way that these folks in this community are reading and understanding Jesus as like a person uh, incarnated, um, that Jesus is not a person that is rich or born into a well-off family, but someone um, who is poor. And um, it is, you know, explicitly clear that that is the case. If you actually read the Bible, which is something that I think takes, <laughs> takes some time for some people, but uh, <laughs> here's, here's something that kind of goes along with this whole idea about Jesus being poor from kind of birth. Uh, This is from a commentator in one of these dialogues named Rebecca. (laughs) She says, The scriptures are perfectly clear, man. The fact is that Christ was born as a poor little child, like the humblest person. The scriptures keep telling us this, and I don't understand why we don't see it. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of like, uh, I laugh because it's like funny how obvious it is that like Jesus is in fact born like as a child who is um, not, you know, like... um, carries the name of like as a king and kind of has all this these like sort of like royal symbolism around his birth in the bible but at the same time um juxtaposed with that is his extreme poverty um and that is an important part of the gospel that i think that we just kind of forget um we we can read that in different ways and we do but we uh the scriptures keep telling us this but we don't understand why we like we don't see it i don't know exactly why that (laughs) happens um so interesting so from the very beginning the conversation is about um uh jesus and sort of his like place in the economic class and like sort of socioeconomic terms yeah no that really stuck out to me too and i think uh it was interesting how they juxtaposed that with the fact that jesus was also not born as a rich person uh like that was a really cool thing that they keep emphasizing so right after the pigsty comment uh this person who's not named uh goes on to say um, God wanted his son to belong to the poor class, right? If God had wanted him to be born to a rich lady, that lady would have had a room reserved at that hotel, uh, especially arriving in her condition, uh, presumably as a pregnant woman. And uh, I think that's so great, right? That um, if you really try to imagine yourself into the whole situation, um, it's just sort of like painfully obvious that Jesus has to have been born to poor folks uh, in a poor situation and specifically not to rich folks. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I went to um, I went to church uh, on like Christmas um, and uh, heard a little bit about the Magnificat, which is good, um, but it, not a lot about Jesus being poor or like Jesus identification with the poor or anything mm. about like economics. Why is that? Do you think why uh, why don't we read Jesus as being poor like they do? 
Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, one part might be the fact that most of us aren't peasants. Uh, I mean, the good news of Jesus Christ uh, means something sort of intuitively different to people in uh, an extremely oppressed part of Nicaragua, I think, than it does to at least somebody like me who grew up in a pretty like comfortable middle-class environment in rural Michigan. Um, so I guess it's just sort of like, I think like when I was a kid, I think it, I had a vague impression that Jesus was poor, I guess, or that his family was poor, but I didn't really understand them as oppressed or I didn't understand poverty as a symptom of yeah. oppression. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it. Like it's really easy to kind of overlook Jesus's poverty. If you think that poverty is a problem of, I don't know, social mobility or like it's a, it might be something deserving of sympathy, but not deserving of like revolutionary change or that sort of a thing. Right. Yeah. It is interesting how, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the, that's the same thing for me too. I guess, uh, growing up as sort of a middle-class person, I didn't think about, um, Jesus, uh, birth narrative as necessarily meaning, um, like poverty, but I think that it is extremely good to read it that way. Um, you definitely get some different results about what it means for Jesus to like um, bring freedom or free people from sin or something like that. It means something different if Jesus is coming from a place of poverty. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, a little bit further down, again, from somebody else who's unnamed, um, there's this quote that I think is extremely good. Jesus came to free the world from these injustices, which still exist. Uh, and he came so that we could be united and struggle against these injustices because we go right on being like that with somebody's foot on our neck. Uh, and the rich, how do they look at us? They look down on us. That's why we've got to get together to win or even uh, I'll be a single revolutionary like Christ. He was the greatest revolutionary because being God, he identified with the poor and he came down from heaven to become a member of the lower class and he gave his life for all of us. The way I see it, we all ought to struggle like that for other people and be like him. Get together and be brave. That way no, nobody will be without a house. And even if an earthquake knocks his house down, he'll get another one. And nobody will have to go on being humiliated by the rich. Um, again, this is a this is what it looks like when like um, people who are in poverty read the gospel. This is like the good news that they see. And I think that it should be the good news that we see too. But um, it might just take an extra step for us to recognize that. Yeah, and it fits so well coming with what they had just read in the Magnificat, right? Where Mary is talking about how the rich are going to be sent away empty and uh, the poor are going to get raised up, the the hungry are going to get filled. Um, That last line, right? uh, Nobody will have to go on being humiliated by the rich. That, I think, is an important sort of motif behind even what Mary is singing, that uh, the poor aren't going to get humiliated by people who are in power anymore. That's kind of the, that's the liberating motif that she feels in her own kind of situation, giving birth to the Messiah. Yeah. It's just, um, I, I know I've said this before in this podcast and I've said it to other people over this Christmas season, that it's just like the dumbest thing in the world that like, when we talk about the good news, uh, we think that it means something metaphysical and, um, the real good news is maybe that people don't have to be poor or people don't have to live without a house. Like that's, that's the actual good news. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit too about, uh, the, um, the problem of like this earthquake that happened in a nearby region. So I don't know that much about Nicaragua, but, uh, the impression that I get, I guess, is that the region where it happened, uh, Managua, was mm-hmm. a place of uh i don't know wealth or at least not exactly as poor as salentaname so uh 
they have a lot of really interesting things that they sort of toss around in this Christmas milieu, thinking about that huge tragedy. And uh, I wonder what you made of that, Matt. Um, I don't know. How do, how did you sort of read this uh, this way of thinking through something like awful that happened where a bunch of people lost their lives and their livelihoods in the context of Christmas? Um, so this is actually a really interesting uh, piece of the conversation because it starts off as sort of like a, as in a really unnuanced way. And then moves on to an incredibly nuanced understanding of, uh, like, the problem of evil in theology, which is really <laughs> wild. Um, I think this is maybe the best answer I've ever heard to that question of evil, even. Um, and, again, let me stress that this is not from, like, a theologian. These are from just, like, regular folks talking about it. Um, so, yeah, there's, like, a, an earthquake, and it kills people, um, and that's uh, very horrible. Uh, so they're kind of discussing it and talking about, like... Um, how uh the earthquake is sort of like a great leveler of people that like um on the one hand like whether you're rich or poor it affects you just the same uh and then someone replies back well you know kind of except that uh the rich can just get a car or get a plane out of the city or whatever um and then the conversation starts to head in this direction that made me really uncomfortable when i read it uh so uh felix says felix um, <laughs> I believe that what happened in Managua had to happen, uh, because of the sins that made me feel extremely uncomfortable. Cause I was like, wait a minute, I've heard the, I've heard this like, um, elaboration on natural disasters before, but it was from Jerry Falwell. Um, <laughs> yeah. so that made me kind of feel weird. Like, well, does God punish people for being rich? Um, and then, uh, somebody else steps into the conversation and I think, um, adds something incredibly important. Um, so Olivia, somebody else, uh, I don't know anything about them. But Olivia says, the earthquake didn't happen because of sins, but the consequences of the earthquake did happen because of sins, because sins are selfishness. Uh, And this is super, I think, insightful just because the the consequences of the earthquake did happen because of sins, because it recognizes that like um, a natural disaster happened and like, okay, we have to think about that in some way. But that the the bad stuff about that natural disaster like happened because of like people are selfish they hoard wealth they hoard resources um there are people who will be disproportionately affected by an earthquake in ways that other folks won't um so that there are i guess uh structural implications uh behind natural disasters that we should probably think through a little bit more that you know whether or not god made an earthquake happened uh happen is is you know a question that i guess we could a- we could ask um but the maybe more pertinent question is like um, how did we make the earthquake worse or how did we make, you know, whatever event worse? Um, how do our sins affect the like others in these kinds of situations? What did you think? Yeah. Is that, that right? Yeah, totally. Uh, I really appreciated that line that you referred to as well, where, uh, someone goes on to say sufferings aren't God's punishment because the poor are always the ones who suffer most. If you're rich, you pay for a car or a plane and you get out of the city, you don't have any problem. Uh, and then they talk a little bit about the situation where the earthquake is kind of like a huge equalizer in a way. Um, everybody kind of has to suffer, but even still after that, like some people are going to be able to bounce back a lot quicker than others. And they bounce back on the backs of those people who can't. Uh, and I think that's such a cool thing. Um, or such an important observation, I guess, to be able to make that distinction. I mean, I don't know much about the problem of evil, except that I've never really figured it out. Um, but it does make me feel a little bit better, I guess, to read something like sufferings aren't God's punishment because the poor are always the ones who suffer most, right? Like if you really believe that, uh, the poor are, 
um, the kinds of people that God identifies with, which is what they're working out in this chapter, uh, then you couldn't um, hold that natural disasters are some kind of punishment for sin because the people who actually get punished will inevitably be the people that God actually is trying to liberate. Yeah. Um, it's actually a, a really, I don't know. I guess what I like about this so much is that like um, theologians try to say this kind of, kind of thing and philosophers try to like make this type of like elaboration on the problem of evil. And like, I don't know, they don't ever do it quite as good as this. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, oh, here, here's a really wild turn for this podcast to take. So Berdaev, uh, <laughs> he, he does, he does this kind of thing though. So he, you know, he, um, he has this book, um, about creativity. Is that right? The one where he talks about anthropodicy. Yeah. Yeah. The meaning of, uh, the creative act. This is a Russian theologian or philosopher type, by the way. Yeah. Well, so he has this idea about anthropodicy where, um, instead of theodicy. So theodicy is about this problem of evil about can like God do evil basically. And he says, like, well, I don't know, but, like, we could ask the same question about people, like, like can can people justify the evil that they do? And um, I right. think that we see, a, like, an incredibly uh, less uh, terminologically uh, hard conversation happening right here. Like, can are people uh, can people justify the evil that they do? And, like, no, they can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyways, really struck by this, just, like, regular folks who, I don't know don't have theological training can figure this out probably better than some of the rest of us can yeah i think part of that just comes from the strength of being willing and courageous enough to just read themselves into the text unapologetically and having the courage to be wrong and having the courage to experiment with different readings uh and kind of hold one idea for a minute like you see a lot of the time someone's like i think this right now and then someone challenges it and then the person who originally held the thought actually internalizes that challenge and like runs with it in this really mm-hmm. amazing kind of interpretive direction. Yeah. Uh, we could, I guess we could use that as a segue into talking about the next part of the book where they look at the shepherds in Bethlehem. Cause I think they really do a good job modeling that um, kind of reading themselves into the text. Uh, was there anything that really stuck out for you or themes in that particular chapter, Matt? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff going on here, I guess. Um, there are two relevant points we could talk about, I suppose. Um, so first of all, um, so if Jesus is going to be poor, uh, if he's going to be poor, uh, be uh, born into a pigsty, like the last chapter uh, said, then he has to be born into a place uh, where people will accept the poor. So that is pretty important. Right. And that's kind of part of the shepherds. Um, and second, I guess, is just that like um, the first people who show up on the scene uh, according to this reading, at least, uh, are people who are like workers. They're not uh, not anyone else, just uh, the working folks, people from the fields and so on. So uh, again, we have these kind of reoccurring themes of poverty and like that's the way this community is kind of accessing the story overall. Um, and uh, I don't know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, again, another example about how, how these people are reading themselves in the story in ways that like I think are just uh, way over the heads of uh, middle-class readers maybe <laughs> yeah i think so um and also uh not only is it a place that welcomes the poor that's one thing they identify with but also a place where the poor can see themselves be welcomed um i think that was another point that was really cool uh there's a there's a moment where this guy oscar says uh the shepherds wouldn't even have wanted to go to a rich man's house if the if um, jesus was born there uh, because they would have seen that he wasn't coming for them, but for the rich. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that was so great. And then Cardinal replies, and the rich don't need liberation. What liberation do the rich need? And then William replies, uh, the rich need to be liberated from their money, which is amazing. <laughs> I know, that's so, so good. Uh, I just love that. Like, they're making so many connections uh, all at once by being able to um, think about poor people as poor people. And that's something that I, like, genuinely could not do. Like, I wouldn't, I guess I would just be too worried about uh, reading, like, 30 commentaries or something um, before I said something like that. Yeah. And uh, I just like that they're like, now, like, we like we know how poor people think. Like, I wouldn't trust a guy in a, I wouldn't trust, like, a, a liberating baby in a rich guy's house. But I wouldn't trust <laughs> a liberating baby in, like, a, a manger. Yeah. Um, along the same lines, too, uh, earlier in this chapter, uh, Felipe says this uh, extremely good thing. Um, okay, so uh, he's he's commenting on, like, why the angel came to the shepherds first to tell them that Jesus was born. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, the angel of God could have gone to the king's palace and said to him, the Savior has been born. But the angel didn't go there. Uh, didn't Sorry, the angel didn't go where the king was, but where the poor people were, which means that his message is not for the big shots, but for the poor little guys, which means the oppressed, which means us. So it's just like this mm-hmm. descending higher, like this descending, like sort of like, okay, like this is actually for us and not for the rich. And it's like the, the, them seeing themselves um, in the story itself. And like, I think that uh, at least in my experience growing up in sort of an evangelical church that like this type of thought is like never really given much time. Like, uh, like Jesus, like t- today was born in the city of David, a savior for you. And like, but like, who's the you in that sentence? I guess it's just us in this yeah. church. Right. But uh, when we read it here alongside these other folks, the you is maybe not all of us in this church. <laughs> it's maybe for some other people first, uh, maybe right. us later. That would be fine. But like uh, other people hear the good news before we do. Um, and that's worth thinking about. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I also appreciate the way that they keep allowing that good news to be good news for them today. Uh, mm-hmm. Like that you is still them, right? In a In an important kind of way. Um, there's a great thing where they talk about the angel appearing to the shepherds and then they kind of imagine themselves into that situation. Uh, so same guy, Felipe, uh, (laughs) he says, uh, the angel is any idea, any inspiration that you get in the woods when you're there cutting wood, like Felix says, any idea about doing something for other people, for the community, it's the Holy spirit because the spirit is the spirit of love for others. Right. And then Julio says, well, that's why I just said uh, that maybe that angel already came and we don't need to wait for him to come in the form of a vision personally, because maybe right now when we're reading this and hearing these words, the angel is coming to give us the news. And then Cardinal finally replies, that's right. At this very moment, you are receiving the same news from the angel that the shepherds received. Um, I love everything about that. I mean, it's so beautiful to kind of think that way about making the text present in actual human lives today and not a kind of collection of like maybe true and maybe not true historical data or something like that right Um, like there's something about this narrative that's trying to speak and uh i also appreciate that cardinal as a you know ordained priest is kind of giving them the permission to hear it that way yeah for sure right like i can imagine um I don't know, telling that to one of my pastors and they'd be like, well, slow down a minute. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Just like, it was, you know, let's contextualize this. Uh, no need to proof text any of this here. And, uh, you know, being extremely academically rigorous with the text. Uh, but I think that's, uh, pretty funny. <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, Hey, let's get back to this other part that I, uh, 
I didn't pick up on. I mean, you said it earlier, and I want to talk about it now instead of <laughs> when you actually said it uh, about uh, the rich needing to be liberated from their money. I like that. So <laughs> yeah, much. yeah. <laughs> so um, let's just unpack that a little bit here. Uh, liberate is a, such a cool word to use in the sentence uh, because uh, liberation is a very good and positive thing, right? It's where you're like unyoked, <laughs> you're you're set free from something. Uh, usually, when we think about liberation theology, we're thinking about people being liberated from their poverty, from the you know the, the poor material conditions they're in. But here we're thinking about liberation in another way, uh, the liberation of the rich from their money. And I like that a whole lot. I think that's mm-hmm. a cool way of thinking about it. Um, so so the, the rich need to maybe be liberated from their money is, uh, I think, okay, a cool rhetorical turn. I think, and think it's good in a lot of other ways. Uh, but I think it has some pretty serious consequences. What do you think, Dean? I agree. Surprise. Um <laughs> I uh, I think it's cool. This is a common theme you see in uh, leftist liberation theologies from Latin America. I remember encountering it also in Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where uh, he makes this really interesting point about how uh, liberating the oppressed would also be liberating for the oppressor. It's just that the oppressor wouldn't be the one doing the liberating, and it might not sort of seem like a liberating moment to them, despite mm-hmm. the fact that it would be. Um like getting liberated from your money is not exactly probably how most people who have money would understand that situation. (laughs) Historically, it's not how they've understood it anyway. Um, But what's nice about liberation theology is they really do authentically care about like helping uh, wealthy people escape those chains as well. Um, There's this kind of weird moment of love where like they love their oppressors enough to try to do something about the chains that they've, you know, put on themselves in a way. Uh, you see that theme come up a lot in this. Um, like, there's this kind of weird ambivalence where all these uh, voices sort of want to affirm the rich as human beings that they should love because they're Christians in a church, and also want to not use that as a way to paper over the real material difference that those people are making against uh, the community in Solentiname. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a really important thing that a lot of North American Christians especially just can't really wrap their heads around. Yeah, so uh, I think that you're right. is definitely something that we can't wrap our heads around, especially when folks uh, like Joel Osteen are running around um, doing their thing. <laughs> like, uh, I think that if we were really good Christians uh, – if we were a really good Christian podcast, we'd be really out to liberate Joel Osteen from his money. Yeah, that's right. That's what we're trying to do uh, with this campaign to uh, usurp his throne on the iTunes, uh, the iTunes popularity list. But oh, that's we're not true. Doing a good job of it. Yeah, good point. Because if we can get him, if we can get more listens than him, he won't have as much money or something. Yeah, I don't know how iTunes I mean, works actually. So. We'll we'll liberate him from all those good good itunes feelings that he gets every time he, uh, he he just boots up that ipod yeah that's right well the the logic behind that is really interesting though this is actually something we talked about with Derek ford about 100 years ago about 30 podcast episodes ago <laughs> um where like loving your enemy might mean stopping them from doing something extremely bad and in this situation yeah. like it's that same kind of idea um that the rich need to be liberated from their money because uh if they don't they'll continue to perpetuate poverty and they'll continue to squash people who are like jesus and that would be the worst yeah for sure 
Um, no, that's a really good point. And I think it just also helps to, I mean, I'm going to say this forever for the rest of this podcast, but it just helps to keep contextualizing these revolutionary movements as movements of love in a really deep sense. Um, they get like easily written off as fueled by hate and resentment. But mm-hmm. if you actually look at how people are trying to navigate and organize their feelings, that's not actually what seems to be the case. Yeah, um, that's true. So right after that whole bit about liberating the the money from people, um, <laughs> there's this kind of funny thing. Okay, so um, right after that conversation, uh, Francisco says, and the poor also have the chance to be great, like the Messiah who was born like the common people. Um, and then Cardinal responds, uh, the people really have great abilities that only need to be developed when the people have education and enough food, and then trails off. Um Right after that, Natalia chimes in uh, uh, and says, like in Cuba, where all the children are healthy. (laughs) They're all taken care of when they're sick and everything. If you are old, they take care of you. They give you everything you need, and you're healthy and eager to work. And uh, there the poor can learn a profession. Uh, And where can anybody do that here? Uh, I like this so much because in their imagination, like their sort of political imagination in this very moment, like, Cuba Cuba is that kingdom of God or something, right? It's like that more like, maybe not kingdom of God, like I'm not going to be like that, but it's like that slightly more <laughs> utopian space where like, um, where justice is actualized in some real material ways that would make a difference to them. Yeah, that's right. Um, it also kind of draws out the theme that shows up throughout the book where uh, they're constantly sort of encouraging each other to think of themselves as potential Christ figures, uh, potential moments of liberation in themselves. Like they're just not afraid to identify real eschatological hopes with also real material people and projects and, and political solutions. And I think that's really impressive. Uh, It also kind of just keeps going back to that theme we were talking about earlier, where I think uh, sometimes we're, a little too reticent to make those kinds of interpretive moves. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, people want to like pump the brakes cause they're not academically sanctioned. And like, I get it. I mean, you know, whatever. I know yeah. like I, I wouldn't want to license like fascists uh, reading their destinies into the gospels, which is like what has happened in history. Um, but I mean, these people aren't fascists, they're peasants. And the reason that they identify with what they see in the Christmas narrative is that they identify other peasants and other poor people. And I think that's just like a a really amazing thing to kind of see them make all these connections. Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, And then just, I mean, reflecting on my own life uh, and trying to think about how like my church, my churches in the past, any church I've ever gone to, um, like they all do the same thing. Like they read themselves into the gospel. Like they, they position themselves in the story in a certain space but it's like it's never rightly done i don't think like i don't know we're not we're not the shepherds or the wise men we're not like jesus like figures we're like i don't know the people who show up to the wedding at cana and just like want to have a good time and hang out for a bit <laughs> <laughs> like we're like i don't know jesus's good acquaintances that are like well we'll hang for a bit but i don't know this might get too wild like uh that's a perfect perfect analogy yeah, I th- I've been working on it a lot. Been workshopping that. <laughs> Just workshopping it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know. Figuring out where we actually read ourselves into the story, I think, is important. These folks are identifying with Christ, and I think they are right in doing so. And um, when we read the gospel, we probably 
do it in some different ways. Maybe we shouldn't uh, be so quick to uh, jump in and think like, oh, man, we would have shown up that night. Right. Yeah, or like if we did, it actually, here's a good segue. If we did, it would probably be more <laughs> the way that they talk about the, the, uh, the visit of the wise men um in the next chapter yeah um so <laughs> loriano who is i'm just gonna put my cards on the table my favorite um he's my <laughs> favorite one uh loriano says um <laughs> i think these wise men shit things up when they went to herod asking about a liberator i would like someone going uh it would be like someone going to samosa now to ask him where's the man who's going to liberate nicaragua um, I just love that Loriano is like, that was a really dumb idea, guys. Like, you should not go to uh, the center of power and start asking around about where that liberation you've heard about <laughs> is coming from. Right. Um, and I feel like that's actually kind of uh, the naive sense in which many, you know, otherwise good intentioned, like progressive Christians kind of see their role. Uh, it's like they they don't see themselves identifying with uh i don't know corrupt despots like king herod or something like that or uh i don't know the president of the united states whoever it might be um but at the same time like they're not exactly uh looking for jesus in the right spot mhm or like even if they even if they saw jesus in the right spot like they wouldn't recognize him yeah that's all right that's another thing they kind of bring out in this chapter that's all right um yeah, what else uh, stuck out to you here, Matt? Um, talking about these wise men, these complicated figures. There's another quote, I guess, along the same lines from uh, one commentator, Don Jose. Uh, Don Jose says, uh, They knew he was going to be born in a little town among the common people, but they were in Jerusalem visiting with the powerful. These are the, the wise men. Um, visiting with the powerful and rich in their palaces. Just like today, there are a lot of church leaders who know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And every year they preach about this at Christmas, but Jesus was born poor in a manger. But the palaces, uh, but the palaces they go to all the time are rich people's houses and palaces. Um, I guess kind of just riffing off that same same point, like um, the the birth narrative, uh, the nativity is like about like impoverished people having a baby in a place that you ought not have babies. Um, but yeah, we could we continue to ignore that in any, along any way possible. Um, just. Uh, I guess why does that keep happening? And I, I guess I don't know, but it keeps it keeps happening all the time, and it is uh, really crazy. And I guess um, is one of those types of things where we're like um, purposely misremembering the gospel and like what it actually means. Um, yeah, that's right. To make us feel better about the world or like distract us from what else is going on. Um, well, cool. I guess at, at the very end of this chapter, there's another really another neat part too. Um, uh, more on the wise men and I guess kind of minimizing their role even a bit. Uh, another person in the conversation, Gloria says, uh, these common people had a hope now. And as soon as they found out, uh, that he'd been born, they felt happy. Uh, that star, maybe it was the townsfolk talking and it got to the wise men. So in this case, it's like a little bit of a different situation, mm -hmm. even that, uh, I like this reading because the wise men really have like no part in the story. There's like, they heard about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cool. <laughs> We'll check it out, whatever. Yeah, I mean, we'll, um, we're pretty wise. We'll see if it's uh, actually a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I like, too, that the wise men really serve so many different symbolic functions in these conversations. There is, like like we've been saying, they function as kind of a in a critical role as, like, the elite. Um, but one cool thing is uh, they go on to note that after they 
you know, visit Jesus, uh, they get warned that they shouldn't go back to Herod in a dream. And Thomas replies to that saying, the wise men go off by another route. He inspired them not to inform on him because he was already a fugitive, I guess, speaking of God. He made them see they shouldn't go back the same way. It was better to go another way, already defending his body. At least that's what I think. And then Felipe says, by now they were like fugitives too. They went off by another way, like they were fleeing. And I think that if they'd returned to the capital, they'd have been killed. And I think it's cool that the wise men kind of start out in this chapter as these, uh, like, kind of maybe, like, bougie uh, curiosities. And then they end up being fugitives because they actually... Uh, saw this kind of liberating moment right um, and were moved by it uh, I think that's really cool and then they choose the right side right like they don't go back to Herod um, and they don't kind of sidle back up to the the ruling powers they uh, they defend um, the the baby liberator uh, and then there's another great moment uh, right after all of that uh, this is also a good example of how um, different experiences I think really illuminate the text so Alejandro says, well, the liberator was born in an atmosphere of persecution and those who come to see him are also persecuted. The people must have kept the secret. And then it says Olivia, uh, his mother, Alejandro's mother. The truth is that ever since he was at his mother's breast, he had the rich against him. When she was pregnant, Mary had sung that her son was coming to dethrone the powerful and to heap good things upon the poor and to leave the rich without a single thing. And from his birth, they pursued him to kill him. And then he had to flee in his mother's arms and with his papa. And I just love that like moment of maternity in this text where uh, Olivia just kind of as a mother, you know, she just hears her son kind of talking about liberation. And she herself is now kind of thinking about Mary and Mary's song of liberation and uh, talking about Jesus the way that a mother, you know, would talk about a son. Um, I think that is such an amazing thing, too. Just having the courage, again, to kind of see themselves in this text, I think, is really a neat and, and illuminating thing. Uh, yeah, it totally is. Um, here's a bad segue. <laughs> <laughs> That's the brand that we're known for. Um, so the last chapter we read is also about uh, mothers and children. That's the segue right there. Um, oh, nice. So, but to recap, I guess, so we, we read about the birth of Jesus. We read about the shepherds and then the wise men. And then uh, the last chapter we, we read was, I guess, about the main sort of political drama in the uh, nativity and the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, and that is uh, when uh, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary all flee to Egypt because Herod's out to kill all the baby boys. So uh, I guess a quick contextualization of this chapter, though, um, before they kind of get into the conversation about that bit where Herod is going to kill the children or whatever, um, uh, Cardinal, I guess, seemed like it seemed like it was important for him to contextualize their conversation with this. Uh, shortly before we had mass this Sunday, a National Guard patrol came to inspect our houses. Martial law had been declared throughout the country with a suspension of individual liberties. Some people seemed to be a little afraid, but the children rushed gaily throughout the church and made so much noise that it was hard at times for us to hear clearly the commentaries on this gospel passage. Um, okay, so it's, uh, I guess, worth noting because this is about, like, an incredibly dark, uh, moment, um, uh, sort of a theme that ke keeps coming up for the Jewish people, if you read the Old Testament, too. Uh, but then, like, uh, even, uh, like, as they're reading this, uh, some, some, like, pretty dark political things are happening to their community as well. 
Um, but there's a funny juxtaposition by like sort of the tenseness of martial law and like the children being loud in church, which is something mm-hmm. I really like a lot. Um, yeah. There's something like in the way that uh, Cardinal is kind of setting this up for us here before we even read any of the commentary. It's like the children of the, like the real revolutionaries. Like they have like the a spirit that uh, surpasses the uh, crappiness of uh, dictatorships. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, they bring that out explicitly in the conversation that children are sort of the the figure of the revolution and like on that point children are i guess potential sites of revolution in a way that's really threatening to the powers that be and that is definitely not lost on these readers uh and again they bring it back to their own community where one of them says uh it's just like what goes on nowadays and it's because anyone that is struggling for the liberation of the oppressed he himself is a christ and then there's a herod And what we're seeing is the living story of the life of Jesus. And more Herods will come along, because whenever there's someone struggling for liberation, there's someone who wants to kill him. And if they can kill him, they will. How happy Somoza would have been if Ernesto, Cardinal, and Fernando, his brother, who was also in attendance, uh, and also a Jesuit priest, had died when they were little kids, so they wouldn't be teaching us all this. It's perfectly clear that the business of Herod and Christ, we have it right here. Uh, That is so wild. Um... I think just even bringing it down to like naming a person sitting in front of you as uh, a danger to a particular regime and kind of making that connection that, yeah, like um, the ruling powers probably would have liked to kill that person as a baby before they got, um, you know, got too revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's such a wild realization to kind of make in that community. Yeah, I think so. Um, It is very wild. that point gets carried out through the, throughout the conversation in another pretty interesting way that, um, again, is another uh, – well, here, I'll just, I'll just go on to read it <laughs> then rather than, like, <laughs> stumble over it like a complete idiot. Um, okay, so this whole thing about, like, about children and their possible potentialities and uh, revolutionary spirit and so on, um, like, it, it gets picked up more throughout this conversation. Um so uh, one person named Donald, uh, uh, let's see, says this. Uh, but in the gospel, it's a tiny child that they're persecuting. And here they're not going to persecute a newborn child from the time when he was born. Uh, they were looking for Jesus to kill him and his parents had to save his life. Okay, so that's uh, Donald kind of weighing in the conversation. They, I mean, they're trying to kill Jesus because it's like a particular circumstance. No one's trying to kill newborn children out here. Um, where, uh, then another boy chimes in though, uh, just another one of the boys, not Donald, just, just one of the boys, one of the good boys that's out there, uh, <laughs> says this, I think the same thing happens here, Donald. Can I say something? You know what country we're in and how there's so much infant mortality, uh, and so many stunted undernourished children. I think that's persecuting children. I think the same thing is happening here as happened to Christ when he was persecuted as a kid. Um, Okay, and that, that is, a good boy. is a good boy. That's that good analysis that seriously takes takes us academics forever to actually figure out. But uh, what he's referencing is like a, a structural analysis of the situation where like uh, children and like poor children are disproportionately um, affected by poverty in such a way that like um, the rich don't necessarily care what happens to them. Like they. Uh, Maybe maybe there's no Herod kind of figure that's like going out and making sure they all die, but there's definitely um, 
you know, no one stopping them or there's no one like raising any huge red flags uh, about about that. Um, right. It's just such a like a, a really powerful thing to recognize and realize that that's persecution. Um, letting children die um, is persecution. Uh, yeah. So this whole kind of reflection on what's going on in terms of the political climate surrounding a political culture that wants to kill children, I think is really interesting as it relates to uh, like a contemporary boring internet debate on whether or not the Holy Family are refugees. So uh, people are like, I don't know, are Mary, Jesus, and Joseph refugees when they go to Egypt? Um, First of all, I don't know, who cares? Uh, You should care about refugees either way. But uh, secondly, I think it's, it's probably just even more important to understand that people have to move around because of like actual material political problems and that's like extremely bad so cardinal reading this biblical passage reflects on it in terms of nicaragua saying uh i said that there are many campesino families that have had to leave their homes in many parts of nicaragua fleeing from misery and hunger or because they have been driven off their lands or because the national guard is killing the campesino leaders burning farmhouses, raping women, jailing whole families, torturing, and the pictures of all those families fleeing, mothers carrying their children in their arms, is the same as the flight to Egypt. And I think, like, it's important to try to find ways to identify uh, these kinds of biblical stories with actual material realities happening today. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, like, was the Holy Family a refugee family? It's like, well, maybe when you're thinking about refugees, they are. Like, maybe when you're thinking about what's happening in Nicaragua in the 1970s, they are in that situation. Um, Like, that's what these stories are for. They're meant to be kind of um, handles that you can use to, like, get a hold of uh, what's happening to you uh, through these other kinds of symbolic situations. That's a good way of thinking about it. And sometimes, I don't know, um, I guess uh, hearing, hearing this type of conversation coming from folks who actually experience it, is way different than hearing it from, um, you know, the white, the white progressive church on Facebook too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just differences in, in tone and rhetoric and importance uh, coming from different audiences. Uh, yeah. Hey, here's a quick, quick dunk, kind of to lighten the mood a tad bit. <laughs> uh, this is uh, important. Uh, it needs to be said because uh, it's so, it's so good. Uh, okay, so they're having this conversation um, about Herod, like sort of like after this bit we just read. Um, people were weighing in on Herod. Herod was a coward. It was because he was a coward that he committed all those murders. A lousy coward. And then, like, you know, kind of this this continues a little bit. Um, Herod didn't kill armed soldiers. He killed poor children. Like, that sucks. And Herod's, like, the worst. And I get it. I agree. Uh, and then, like, kind of <laughs> out of nowhere, this really funny thing happens. And it says this. A Protestant who has come from the coast opposite. They persecuted Jesus, but he wasn't in opposition to any government. <laughs> and then uh, Felipe, uh, my my main squeeze in this whole thing, uh, Felipe <laughs> says, he came as the king of the Jews. What more opposition do you want? <laughs> and then the conversation, no, but then, this, then the best thing is just like even what precedes that. Another young man, Herod, of course, that millionaire with his power, he had everybody crushed. <laughs> so, like, it's like uh, some, like, stupid, like, Protestant wanders in the room, says a dumb, a bad opinion. Felipe, like, dunks on him, and then it's just like, 
yeah, so Heron sucks again, right? <laughs> As we were saying before, we were so <laughs> rudely interrupted by this Protestant nerd. Uh, it's also the only time that Protestant shows up in the conversation, too, by the way. Uh, everyone <laughs> after that is just, like, you know, totally cool. Uh, so it's just, like, this one, like, this one, like, this, like, one dumb Protestant just, like, walks in the room and just completely ruins the, the vibe. And then I'm just like, nah, I don't think so. So, uh... <laughs> I guess the moral of that story is don't be that Protestant ever. <laughs> Protestant friends, yeah. let's just try to avoid that. <laughs> that is extremely good. Yeah, I also love that moment. It's a good good little window. Speaking of not being that Protestant um, and uh, wanting to be an actually like good Christian, um, <laughs> the conversation after that kind of turns in a different direction um, where uh, – where Pancho, someone who identifies himself as uh, a person who is not a socialist uh, but a Christian, <laughs> asks um, it asks the group as a whole, uh, like what what does what needs to happen in Nicaragua? Like what would uh, what would it look like to see change in the country? Um, and uh, different people kind of like weigh in on the conversation in a few different ways. Um, Manuel says, "If there's going to be change, you have to cooperate." Um, and then Pancho responds, "What?" like how cooperate with what and um the the conversation takes an important turn though poncho identifies i think the 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 most true thing about revolutions and also the the most interesting and scariest thing uh poncho says this uh how do you do it i'd like somebody to tell me (laughs) that's the way it's going to be done uh but you can't when we rise up they kill us and then alejandro says but look they killed him too poncho correct but he was christ and we're never going to compare ourselves with him Manuel says, but I heard there have been other men, like Shea, who have died for freedom. Pancho says, right, you can die, you and tomorrow will all be dancing and will never think of you, uh, think that you died for us. Uh, then a person named William chimes in and says, uh, then you think that those deaths are useless. Pancho responds, they're useless or they're almost useless. And then finally, young Miriam says, uh, I say that when there's someone who will free our country, there will be another Christ. So uh, here again, we see the ways that these people are reading their own context and situation into the person of Christ in a way that is incredibly interesting and uh, mm-hmm. I think insightful that uh, Christ for them is a figure that actually liberates, that does something, that gives them a type of freedom that's not not just like um, an altar call or um, devotions or something like that, right? The freedom that they see in Christ is something that is uh, a bit more real, one that actually changes their life and what their lived reality might be. Um, other people bring that type of thing too. Uh, Shay, for example, which is a really cool inclusion. Um, and uh, Pancho needs to uh, adjust his attitude because uh, <laughs> those deaths uh, mean something and that when people try to bring freedom, um, there will be another Christ. So a pretty uh, strongly worded statement, but it's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty wild because on the one hand, like Poncho isn't completely wrong, right? Like uh, they do um, like they will potentially lose their lives and uh, having that kind of attitude. Like, it's not like Poncho doesn't want something to change. It's just that he doesn't uh, want people to talk without kind of understanding the real material uh possibility that they're yeah. gonna get killed for it and you know like in 1977 this whole community got burnt to the ground um for doing exactly that 
so uh like that's not like a bad concern um and something that i even have like trouble kind of rebuking because like i don't live in that situation at all but i do find myself extremely inspired by the response of the people around him by saying um you know they're they're willing to do that and they're inspired by both christ and jay to do that yeah i guess uh i mean you're you're right that there are uh there are costs of life in liberation movements that's completely true i guess the important thing to me is just like those deaths are actually important and they matter and i think that is um demonstrable through history i mean like there are all kinds of other other characters who have been killed in liberatory struggles who we do remember that means something really important to the movements that they're around shay for sure or like um to the american labor movement like joe hill other people like that mm-hmm. but uh i guess when there's someone willing to free uh free a country or work towards liberation there's another christ huh <laughs> yeah i like that a lot uh another christ is a pretty radical thing that a lot of people don't want to say and i like that they're so open about it over and over and over again but it kind of fits into their hermeneutic of thinking through like how the bible works and acts on them like earlier we talked about the ways that like um this is the good news that keeps getting said like over and over again right like yeah um like they're hearing an angel say it or something and i think it's kind of a similar way this works for them too that like um the good news is told over and over again and then i guess like christ has to come over and over again yeah that's right and you know before like some nerd is like hey that's uh taken away the specificity or sovereignty of christ and when i say some nerd i'm talking about jacques Ellul specifically <laughs> um uh this is a common hermeneutical uh strategy not just used by peasants in nicaragua uh by you but, but also used by all your favorite uh weird medieval commentators from uh meister eckhart to um I don't know. I, like, pick your medieval theologian. Like, they're constantly just making stuff up, using biblical characters and stories as symbols and allegories to say things that are not what they are saying in the text, but they do work for them uh, in specific contexts to get specific points across. And, like, this is something that Christians have done forever. Like, we've read these texts and we've found ways to uh, repurpose them and to read ourselves into them whether we're honest about it or not. And I think, uh, like, Matt, earlier when you were saying that so many of us in North America, like, we read ourselves into these texts as well, it's just that we don't recognize that that's what we're doing, whereas uh, these people are doing it explicitly, and I think in a a really cool and important way. So, yeah, I guess uh, probably the thing that really brings all this political reading of the Bible home to me is something that Fernando Cardinal, um, Ernesto's brother, says toward the end of this chapter. Uh, He puts it pretty simply. He just says, I don't understand how you can read the Gospels and get spiritual lessons for your life out of it and not get involved in the revolution. This book has a very clear political position for anyone that reads it simply, as you read it. But there are people in Managua who read this book, and they are friends of Herod, and they don't realize that this book is their enemy. And I think that is the kind of hermeneutic that I really want to recover, I guess. Even in my own, like, spiritual life, um, I really want to read it simply enough to find that clear political position, I guess. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, If you enjoyed this Christmas episode, you should go uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Twitter. 
uh, like our Facebook page. Uh, we got two of them. We got a regular Facebook page, and then we have another one called the Magnificast Basement, where you can like ask questions or post articles or have a conversation with one of us. It's pretty fun. There's a community of people that post there, and uh, you could be one of them if you wanted to. Uh, cool. So uh, have a great rest of your Christmas time, post Christmas season, and remember. Don't be like that dumb prostitute we talked about earlier in this episode. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.